Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days Just representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives So excited for today's show We're doing a 360 degree analysis of Ari Hendricks and her remarkable improvement from nearly a four hour marathoner down to 242 in the fifth best American born African American runner in history. This is an incredible episode. Ari played basketball in college, then coached basketball in college, which, if you know anything about me, warms my heart. I did the same exact thing. And boy, has she taken to running. At first blush, if you look at her improvement, it's easy to look at it and say, wow, this was pretty linear. It's certainly going to be interesting, but you know, a pretty linear pathway for a great athlete. And certainly, she is a great athlete. And the improvement is remarkable. No question about it. But as you'll hear in this episode, the more we dug into it, the more we learned that there's a lot of context here. There's a lot of ups and downs. And it really is a remarkable story. And what we do with these 360-degree analyses is we talk to the athlete first. We get a full athlete's perspective on what their improvement was like, the ups, the downs, and the challenges. And then we talk to their coach to see what it was like from the coach's perspective. And this, I can't think of a better pair uh, than Sydney DeVore and Ari Hendricks for exactly this kind of discussion. They are so close. They're, they're, just, they're just a great team in all sense of the word. So let's get into it first with Ari Hendricks and then with Sydney DeVore. All right, we are here with Ari Hendricks. Ari, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been a huge fan of the show for uh, several years, so I was really stoked, and I'm really stoked to be here. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, what, what a nice thing for you to say. <laughs> this is our second version of this kind of episode. We had Diane Neubauer on with her coach, James McCurdy, last month doing a, as I mentioned in the intro, a 360-degree analysis of a remarkable improvement that an athlete has had, so kind of having them say what happened, and then hear from a coach and hear from their per- their perspective. We're going to have your coach, Sydney, on after this conversation. And that's not just a trick of the podcast. We were actually talking to her right after this conversation. So we'll <laughs> yeah. be able to dive into that as well. So for the people, because this is relevant, because of what you were just able to do, tell us about the race that you just had. Yeah. Um, so I just did the Bayshore Marathon up in Traverse City, Michigan. Um, I ran a PR of 242.51 uh, was my official time, which makes me the fifth fastest U.S.-born African-American woman. Um, so it's really exciting. Uh, there's a lot of surprises in that race. Uh, three weeks ago, I didn't actually know. I considered not running it. Um, I was. I had a lot of struggle in this build with life stress and work stress. Um, and I can be typically pretty hard on myself. Um, so I was really nervous. Uh, I was in the middle of transitioning to a new job. So there was a lot of things going on outside of the running world um, where I considered for about a week whether or not I was going to do it or not. Uh, but in the end, <laughs> I'm glad I did. <laughs> and is this is, is Bayshore Marathon one close to where you live? Yeah, it's about four hours north of where we live. We live in a suburb of Detroit, Michigan. So just north. Gotcha. And it's a race that I've heard of. I think it's it's fairly popular, correct? I know obviously it's not one of the world marathon majors or anything, but it, it is a popular race. Yes. Um, I know it was popular for Michigan. And when we signed up in December, uh, we were it sells out generally in like minutes. Um, wow. So we signed up and then proceeded to get into the elite field. 
um, afterwards. But yeah, it's really popular. I had a ton of friends and people that I know in the race that I didn't know all of them were going to be there. I think like all of Michigan and suburbs of Detroit were there. <laughs> um, so it was really fun. The half and full run by each other. So you get a chance to see everyone that's racing. All right. That, that is awesome. Well, I have to say a quick aside, and this is not, this is, this is very, very quick. But are you, do you know Tommy? Tommy runs? He's, he's on the Tommy. podcast all the time. When I think of Detroit, I think of my man Tommy. Yes, he is awesome. Um, I, Tommy, I met him in 2020 when I moved here. Um, so he's great. Yeah. We're friends, big fans of him here. That's not going to be the point of this podcast, but I, I'd be remiss <laughs> if I didn't ask. Yeah. You, gotta, you can't mention Detroit without mentioning him. So. Exactly. <laughs> so you'll be talking to him later this week. I got I to gotta make sure that I'm on point. So, all right. So, that's obviously that's amazing. Two forty two. I mean, my goodness, right? So so many people know that that was obviously underneath the OTQ mark for the last OTQ, right? Now it's down to, to two thirty seven, but still an amazing time. You mentioned also fifth fastest uh, American born African American female runner. Were you aware of that list, or where you'd potentially fall in that list, or is that something you found out after the race? So I was aware of the list because um, I was on it uh, from when I broke three hours in 2018. Um, so I was somewhere on that list already. Um, and going into Bayshore, we always had sort of an idea maybe of where I wanted to fall in, like a t- finishing time of like a, a PR sort of thing. So I knew where it would put me on that list. I think um, going in with a, in, in the last couple of weeks, and not knowing whether or not I was going to run the race, if I was, how was I going to run it? I wasn't sure where I would fall, if at all, on that list, right? Like mar- anything can happen in the marathon. Um, so, but I was aware of it, yes. <laughs> all right. All right. So let's so let's zoom back out. All right. So we're going to not do this the whole thing chronologically, obviously, because we started at the end. But let's go to the beginning um, when you started, before you start marathoning. All right. So you, your first marathon was 10 years ago. You ran at 357, but let's talk about just you as an athlete. So you're kind of your athletic background that kind of preceded that marathon or any running you were doing that preceded that marathon. So I wasn't doing any running preceding the marathon, my first marathon. Um, I was a high school basketball coach. I mean, sorry, basketball player, um, college basketball player. And I was an All-American in college. Um, oh, what school? I went to Minot State in North Dakota. Okay. Um, so yeah, I played basketball all my life. I didn't start running until I was 24 and in graduate school. Um, my senior year of college, my dad passed away and all my life he thought I was going to be a runner. Like, cause I would play like flag football and youth sports. And so he was like, you're so fast. Like you have to be a runner. He timed me in front of our house to the stop sign with his watch just to see how fast I can run. So when he passed away my senior year, I went to graduate school afterwards. And as a way to sort of stay connected to him and pay homage to him, I started running. Um, And I went from running to the marathon and like nothing in between. Okay. Well, (laughs) let's talk about that. I was a former college basketball player as well. I was no All-American. Lord knows. Um, But obviously, especially when you're talking about someone who's a guard, you're seeing about explosive speed, explosive, you know, leaping ability, just basically a fast twitch type athlete, which certainly those people can run the marathon. They do it all the time. But you don't necessarily think of someone going from that straight to the marathon, right? That can be a big leap for people. And not even just a big leap just in terms of the training, but just in terms of like you're, you're kind of skipping over a lot of things that you potentially be really good at. 
right? In terms of like, oh, maybe I should focus on the 5Ks. I'm already kind of fast twitch and maybe that can suit me a little better. So just talk to me about the the rationale between the race selection choices and from a training perspective, why you chose to go that route. Gosh, I'm not entirely sure. I think I was also of the mindset of like, go big. Um, and so the marathon was just sort of like, also going to be a really big challenge for me. Um, and would, I knew the training would keep me really busy. So I decided in, it was in, on Jan, in January that I was going to run the marathon and I ran it in September of the same year. So I had quite a bit of training, but I think I was following probably a plan that I'd found online and like probably loosely followed it. Um, I remember my goal for that race was just to not walk. Um, so I certainly wasn't out there trying to crush the race or like do anything um, extraordinary. But yeah, it just sort of like stuck after that. <laughs> so this is at age 24? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you must have been still like relatively, even though you weren't new, you were new to running, but you must have not been that far removed from, from playing college basketball. So I'm assuming that you were still relatively fit kind of going into this marathon cycle. Yeah, it was following, it was the January after I graduated. So I was actually still on campus and I was the graduate assistant coach. So I was still going to practices and practicing with the team when they needed me to jump in as a coach. Um, so yeah, doing I was like, doing like the college noontime hoops scene. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> Intermurals. <laughs> I was doing it. <laughs> well, that, and, that, and that's a great, that's a great place to be, right? Cause you're building, obviously like when you're coming from that sort of background, um, I think one of the hard parts for a lot of people with marathon training, and you know this better than anybody as someone who's so darn good at it now, is you come from, let's say, especially from playing basketball, the hard parts of marathon for people who don't come from that is building up the, the strength and the, just the tolerance and being on your legs for so long. I know even now, I'm 20 years removed from playing college basketball. I must all be like, I got to run for two hours. I'm like, man, I practice for two hours every day for nine months out of the year. I, I shouldn't really, this shouldn't be that big of a deal. Obviously, I mean, with you starting marathoning so quickly after your college career ended, did you ever play those kind of mental games or those mental comparisons between your training and your practice schedule? Um, I don't not not in that sense. I know for a lot of years in my like early running career, I didn't run over 16 miles for a training run. Um, so I was never having to go like 18 or 20 and sort of feel what that felt like. So there was that difference. So I never, yeah, I didn't really break it down into how long I was out there working versus my career as a basketball player. But again, I never ran over 16 in a training. Now, how did you approach easy running? I know this can be a hard thing for a lot of people getting into running a little bit later, especially coming from sports that focus on kind of on, on, on the speed and explosive element. I took my easy runs really easy. <laughs> Look at you. So you were pretty mature about this right from the start. I, try, I mean, yeah, I didn't really know. I didn't, I couldn't really correlate. And I guess I wasn't um, so knowledgeable of the sport of like running easy runs fast or too slow or too, you know, any of that stuff. Um, so I just sort of went out there and kind of jogged um, an easy run. Um, but yeah, usually they would range like probably eight, but at a 357 marathon, my marathon pace was similar to my marathon pace. That's fair. Kind of. That's right. Well, it's also it's also tough, right? Because you haven't built up the mileage. You don't even know like marathon pace. You're like, I'm just hoping to finish, right? Yeah. <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it does get trickier as opposed to like now, where your marathon pace is a much more like well defined range. Where it's like, what's my marathon pace? It's not walking. It's my marathon pace. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. All right, so let's talk about that first. We won't race. We don't have to stay on it for too long because we're going to really focus on there on how you improved over time. But basically, you said the goal was you know to not walk. You finished with three fifty seven, so you must have been pretty close to achieving that goal if you didn't get it. Yeah, I didn't walk. I really thought about it at mile twenty four. I really thought about it, um, and really had to talk myself into not doing it. I. Ran the marathon in Bismarck, North Dakota. So it was about like a two-hour drive from where I was um, at school. And it was around the university down there. So, yeah, I remember like I got the hotel, like went race morning. Um, and it was like, I mean, it was great. Like I felt so accomplished at the end. And I remember finishing and being like, I have to set a, a goal now, like a different, maybe a bigger goal. And that's when I wanted to qualify for Boston. So you just dove right in like this is this is my this is my athletic journey now. This is my thing. Yeah. <laughs> what was the pain like or the discomfort during that race for you? Um, it very extreme. <laughs> uh, I don't think I'd ever felt any kind of pain as an athlete as I did in that race. Um, and but it was so fun. At the end, right? Like the after part, <laughs> not the during. <laughs> but once I like had completed it and I knew I couldn't wait to get back to school and tell everyone that I didn't walk. <laughs> and so, um, and like call my family and tell them that I'd finished the race. Uh, so I was really excited about that. And then I immediately signed up for the LA Marathon next. <laughs> oh, interesting. So why LA? Um, so I'm from Southern California. Um, so I know I, I knew LA was in the spring and so I could probably plan it around a trip home or spring break. Um, and so that was my next goal and to run, I live in, I'm from about an hour North of LA. I'm from Ventura. So I was like right in my backyard. Yeah, absolutely. So over the next few years, how did you approach training and what was the, what was the trajectory for you as a runner and how you viewed running? Um, yeah, I mean, I set my goals after my first marathon on qualifying for Boston. So that would have been in 2013. Um, and I, for the next several years, I would use just like training plans that I found online. I'm still like, I can't say that I ever like increased mileage or tried to do anything more. I think I tried to stay consistent in my training, um, and make sure that I, whatever plans I was finding online, I stuck to them. So at LA, I qualified for um, Boston with like a 2.31 or two. I think my qualifying time was like 3.35 at the time. Um, and then I would run the same marathon, Bismarck Marathon in September of 2013, where I'd run 3.15. Um, so a year later, I ran 3.15, still only like, I didn't have a coach. I was still just following plans online. I was also, yes, practicing with the team a lot. So I was really active outside of that, but I wouldn't say I probably was running like 40 miles a week, not a ton. And how many days a week? So 40 total out of how many days? Uh, maybe five. Okay. Um, I mean, that's, I mean that's, that, that's considerable, right? If you're running five days a week and you hit and you're in the forties, I mean, you're again, simple math has you, you know, eight to nine miles a day. Yeah. And it helped like the, my head coach of the school, she would run with me sometimes. Like she liked to run. So we'd run in the mornings together. Um, but yeah, I just tried to stay really consistent. And, um, once I ran three fifteen, 
I, that, that's when I wanted to break three hours. Now, would you, would you train through the winter? Because all, cause you're, you're coaching, right? So you got the season going on and for a season, but that also means that you're doing a ton of scouting, you're doing a ton of recruiting, you're doing a ton of self-scouting. And then the winter is where we're talking about North Dakota here, right? Unless you move to, to different schools, but you know, what, what, what was the, what was the winter training season like? It's interesting because for a lot of my running career, I ran on the treadmill. So the winter never, I, I wouldn't run, I wasn't running outside. Uh, winter, summer, fall. When I was in grad school and training for races, I had two other jobs on top of being in school and being an assistant coach. This is bringing, this is like deja vu, bring me back to my <laughs> earlier life. This is hysterical. All right. So what other jobs did you have? Um, so I worked at the running store in Minot and then I worked at like a sandwich shop in town, um, in the evenings. This is great. You get your running gear, you get your food, <laughs> yeah. you, you got everything paid for. This is fantastic. Yeah. I'm just kidding. No, I'm, just, yeah. I'm not assuming you got free stuff, but you're, you're hitting like all the boxes here. This is great. Yeah. So it was a lot of running at 4am. Oh. If I wanted to get, to get like, I lived with the head coach and her family would joke that they never saw me. I lived there for two years and they never saw me. So did they have a, a treadmill or was or was the gym open at that time? I had a key to the um, oh, okay. the facility so I could let myself in. And yeah, I'd be I'd get home at like 10, 30, 11 in the evening, do homework, go to bed, be up at four at the gym running. And then I either have like morning practice with the team or I'd be in the office. If we had afternoon practice, then I'd go to work. Um, at the sandwich shop in the evening, and then I'd work at the running store on the weekends. That's a quick turnaround. That's a lot yeah. on your plate. Even if you didn't have a lot of stuff going on in your life, but obviously you have multiple jobs and you have demanding jobs and the physically and mentally. So was that schedule sustainable for you or did you have crashes at certain points? It was. Um, I guess I just learned – I like being busy. And I learned – not that it's great to like function on very little sleep. So I made, I made it through the, it was two years um, of doing that. And then I would say the only way it like hurt me is that one, I adjusted to not having a ton of sleep, which now I need a lot of sleep. So I'm still trying to like work my way through getting more sleep and being like comfortable with that. And being more comfortable with not having to be extremely busy all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So you you had that first goal of qualifying for Boston. You got it at the next race and then proceeded to lower your time by almost 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes in your third marathon. So obviously the BQ is no longer a stretch goal or maybe even a goal at all. So how did your goals or just your focus start to alter in the marathon as you proceeded to get closer to the three hour mark? Yeah. I mean, after I ran 315, I wanted, I knew then that I wanted to break three hours um, because yes, I, I can qualify for Boston and I can run that and that's amazing. But there's, a, I always want to have like a next goal or thing that I want to do. Um, so breaking three was that um, thing that I wanted and I think at that point I knew I needed like some type of guidance. Like I couldn't keep, there's something had to be, I'd run 308 after I ran 315. Um, and so some, I needed to do something. That's another different. huge jump. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, my goodness, another 77 minutes in a marathon. My goodness, that's 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 incredible. And especially as you get faster and faster, like the percent of it increases, that's almost equal to what the percent increase was before. Yeah. So, and I started to struggle with like, I didn't really know what to do with my training. Like what would get me to that next step? Um, so I did hire a coach to try and help me break three hours. Okay. And when was that? Um, in the spring of 2018. Okay. So was that Sydney or was this a coach before Sydney? Uh, it was a coach before Sydney. Okay. All right. So you, so you hired a coach then you're thinking, trying to break sub three. So at that point, what were two years out from the marathon trials or actually, yeah, two years out. Yeah. Two years out from the marathon trials. Was that even on your radar at that point? No. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. Were you at this point, had you transitioned to being more of a fan of running or were you still like super basketball focused and running was your love, but you really didn't, do you follow the sport or how did you just consume sports media and how did running potentially fall into that? Yeah, I think in 2018 is probably when I became like a really big fan of the sport. And I started watching like, you know, Boston's on e- on TV and New York is on ESPN. Um, I started following social media platforms for running. So yeah, I did become more in uh, aware of like the running community and things. And I'm a really big shoe nerd. So that also helps. Um, that was like basketball shoes, uh, fashion shoes. And now I'm really into running shoes by 2018 and like different shoes that I should wear and check out. <laughs> All right. So tell me about the next, so the, 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 the trying to break three in terms of like, so, so you hired a coach for the first time. What was it, what were the immediate changes to the training and how did it, and how, as you also have a very specific time goal, that's a really challenging one. How did that play a part in races you were selecting? Um, I mean, the immediate change is like workouts, right? Like there, it's very obvious I have workouts and I have like a schedule that I look at every day and I'm very obvious to, I have someone to ask questions about workouts if I don't understand them. Um, so there's this relationship of back and forth and like support that wasn't there before I was kind of on my own sort of guessing and yeah, specific paces for those workouts. I have a better idea of like what I should be doing daily, a range of paces for an easy run, um, and sort of what those workouts mean and what they can do for me. In terms of choosing like races in particular, um, I would choose the Ventura Marathon to break three hours at, which was my local race at the time. Um, and that was kind of selfish. Uh, I could sleep in my own bed. I knew I would have support uh, at the race and my family could be there. So I decided to choose that one after trying at the Orange County Marathon and running 302 in the spring of 2018. Okay. And how does weather play a part in those races since you're talking about Southern California and obviously it can get hot, but it's not like it's hot all the time. And you know there, there are there are still seasons to this and, and times of day can even play a part. Right? You, can be in, you can be in San Diego and if you go for a run at 7 a.m. in the middle of summer, it's going to be cold. Yes. Right, but it won't be cold at 9:30. However, so how did you how did weather play a part in this? So, when I first tried to break 3 in Orange County, it was in May. Um, so not too hot yet. Um, still pretty cool in the mornings. Um, and Ventura I knew would be cooler because it's a point-to-point race. Um, so it starts in Ojai, which is a mountain town that Oh, is this um, Mountains to Beach? 
No, it's different. Because I know it's in that same area, right? Yes. They have similar courses. They both run point to point, but the Ventura Marathon uses, I'd say, like 90% of the bike path from Ojai to Ventura, whereas Mountains to Beach um, goes on some different roads. Okay. Um, And so in Ojai, it'll it'll always be probably 10 to 15 degrees cooler than it is going to be in Ventura. Um, So I knew it would be a chillier start and still really cool once we got into Ventura where the sun would be up and it'd be a little bit more exposed. But because we are right on the beach, I wasn't afraid of any kind of like heat. And that's where you got it? That's where you went when sub three? Yes, 257. <laughs> Comfortably under sub three. This is, that's fantastic. Congratulations. And when you were doing that race, did you did when did you know it was gonna happen? Like was there was there a point where you're like, okay, I got it, or were you trying to run blind to like the the pace of it? So because I lived there, I had the advantage of every single long run I ran on the course. I love that. Um, so, yeah, I was driving up to Ventura or to Ojai every weekend and running my 18, 20-mile runs down this, the route. So I, I was pretty confident that it could happen because I, was so, I knew every turn of that race. And I was also, for the first time, I think, aware of pacers. So they'd had pacers at the race and I chose to not go with them and sort of run my own race. And I remember I ran with um, a woman, Katie, I think her name was. And I remember telling her that the pace that we were running was fine, even though the pacers were ahead of us. Um, Then I was super confident that we were going to run under three hours because I had talked to her before and that was the goal that she had. Uh, And so, yeah, I was really comfortable with the pace. And then the last 10K, we sort of just like took off down. It gets a little bit more downhill towards the end. And yeah, I did it. And so I was was really confident going into that race. That is fantastic. All right. So all of a sudden you're like, all right, is that so? So obviously we know that you're we kind of know the end of the story here. However, in that in that moment, did it feel like, okay, what's next? Or did you kind of feel like, all right. Running goals, I'm good. Or, or do you, was it just kind of keep moving the goalposts? So from there, I did jump into wanting to OTQ. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So after breaking three, that was the next goal. Okay. So that was, so that was beginning of 2019? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you mentioned this, this was before you hired Sydney, but I know you hired Sydney in 2019. So what was, and I don't expect, and I wouldn't want someone to, you know, take shots at other coaches and things like that. But what were some of the reasons where you felt like a coaching change would benefit you? And what were you looking for in a new coach? Um, I was looking just for something different, um, a different style of training, different types of communication, um, just sort of switching it up. I did run another marathon right before uh, contacting McCurdy Train, where I would run 302, 302, 305. Um, And in that race, I'd also experienced my first panic attack during a race. Um, So there was a lot of factors uh, after that. I'd experienced that. I wasn't as confident going into that race. um, And I just wanted to sort of try something out. I'd been following McCurdy Train for quite a while. So I was definitely aware of them. Um, and so I contacted, uh, them after I was, it was Eugene of 2019. Now, had you been dealing with, uh, panic attacks, not in a running setting prior to that? Um, yes. So I did go, I 
have struggled and I still do struggle with panic attacks. It started in the fall of 2018. Um, I'd had my first one on a run, but it wasn't due to running. It was sort of life factors um, that I was dealing with. So I do deal with mental health struggles and depression and anxiety and um, panic attacks uh, during running and outside of it. Do you take medication for any of those things? Um, I did. I currently do not. Um, but in during COVID of 2020, I went through a really hard time. Um, and so I was taking medication previous to that, but um, I was in therapy and I have a psychologist. And so I had like, I have a great team that uh, helps me in uh, dealing with that. And so, yeah, 2020 was a real struggle uh, for me, which I'm sure we'll get to. But um, yeah, I do. There's uh, a lot of people that have helped me and helped me still. Well, let's talk about it. Let's dive into it now, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. what, what were you, know, you mentioned? You mentioned. So let's just. I'll leave it open-ended. What were some of the things that were maybe, you know, impacting you at that time and, and how did you deal with them? And, and what was the, you know, you have to get super specific if you don't want to, but what were some of the, the factors and what was the timeline of, of how this went down? So I moved to Michigan in March of 2020, which we all know was, I think I moved to Michigan a week before COVID shut everything down. Um, so it was great, right? Like the first few months we were running a lot. Um, Sydney and I were running a lot. I moved here to train with her. Um, and that's where I'd run the virtual Pittsburgh, uh, marathon and I'd run 244. But I'd say about a week before that, I started to feel pain in my hip. Um, and through the marathon, I started to feel pain like down my leg and like the front of my, my shin and stuff. Um, and it would take a long time after a couple of weeks after that, I couldn't run. I didn't know why I was going to see doctors. I got an, a back MRI. They thought it was my back um, to the point where I couldn't run. Uh, so we're in the pandemic. I'm in a new place and I can't run anymore. Um, and I hadn't seen my family since I moved. Um, so I just went into this really dark place. It's the first major running in, running injury and really injury I, I ever had. Um, so it was sort of like a lot was taken away from me and I struggled. Um, probably the most I've ever struggled in my life. Um, with my life, I struggled. Uh, and my family flew out to Michigan. I have a twin sister who's awesome. Her and her wife flew out and spent some time with me. And then I went back to California for a few days a week and talked to some doctors there and got on some medication. And then I came back to Michigan and uh, sort of tried to rebuild myself. <laughs> and Sydney was awesome through all of that and my family. And um, so it's just, yeah, something that I still struggle with now and something that I'm just aware of um, when I do have bad days and, and things. And that's why I considered not doing Bayshore and maybe stepping down to the half or not doing it. Um, Cause those things can, can, can tend to cause a lot of like stress for me when it happens. Oh, I can, I can certainly imagine. And when you were going through that uh, in 2020, did bringing it up to your support network, uh, did that come naturally or were you kind of suffering in silence? Um, suffering in silence. Um, nobody knew. Um, I, I texted my family 
and they had they texted Sydney and she came over to my house on the day that like sort of everyone found out um and then my sister flew out to to Michigan but it wasn't anything that anyone was aware of okay and then has that been something that in addition to everything else that you've been able to embrace just the communication side of things with with the people in your life yeah i mean i it's something I'll, I think I'll always have to work on. I've always been someone that's like, I can figure it out. Like I can do it. I can like power through it. And it, every day I still have to work on being more communicative and more open about how I'm feeling and what I'm feeling. Um, so I think it's something I'll forever continue to work on and I can always get better at. Right. So it, so it came from the idea of like, you can just, you can solve the problem. It wasn't like a feeling of, and I'm just bringing up things here. I'm not saying that you should feel, should be feeling yeah, or should have yeah. felt any of these things. It wasn't like, you know, some people feel like, oh, I don't, I feel shame around this. Or people are like, I don't want this person to worry. I don't want people to take care of me, right? There's like, going to be so many reasons to not communicate this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was that. I didn't want to be a burden. Um, I didn't want everybody worrying about me. I knew my family would worry because I'm 3,000 miles away. And also, uh, I grew up, take like, my mom's a backup singer for Barry Manilow, and so us as kids, we, we like took ourselves to school, like walked to the bus stop. We did, we grew up kind of fast. And so I'd always been able to do things on my own and sort of figure it out. And so it was that coupled with not wanting to be a burden and ask for help. Um, and that, and like, and yes, be seen as weak, I think was a, a big thing that I struggled with too, was I didn't want anyone to think I was weak because I was dealing with this. And now, obviously, races were, were closed down at this point. Um, did you were you able to get a diagnosis for the hip issue, or is this like a psychosomatic thing where all of your mental and emotional pain has started to manifest itself physically? Um, yeah, eventually, I got. I think in June of that year, I had a stress. By the time I got an X, the correct X ray, it was a stress reaction in my tibia. Um, but that was weeks to maybe a month after I'd gotten a back MRI, which is $3,000. It had nothing to do with my back. Um, I'd gotten other x-rays and doctor's opinions. And, um, finally we got one on my tibia and that's what it ended up being. Oh my God. <laughs> is, that, is that just cause, is that just cause you had kind of discomfort all over the place and they just weren't sure? Or? Yeah. It was a lot of like, I did, I did deal with low back pain. So I kept saying that. And also saying my leg. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like I'm frustrated by it. But what I was saying, what else were they going to do? Um, and like I had a history of low back pain, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Defensive slides can do that to you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many times I sat, sat on the floor with a heat pack on for practice, like this freaking defensive slides, man. For <laughs> the first month of practice. Like I knew my back was going to kill me after every practice. You can't bend um, over too much. You got to stay straight up and that's rough. <laughs> yeah, so true. Um, all right. So once that, once you were diagnosed with a stress reaction, so we're starting this in March, you're finding this out in June. When were you able to start running again or were you able to be active during this period of time? So we found out, so I initially started feeling pain in May and then I probably didn't start running until end of July, beginning of August is when I started the like return to running. So like 20 minutes, um, one minute on and off, um, slow return to running is when I started back. Okay. And I was biking when I wasn't in, if I, as long as I wasn't causing pain to my leg, I could bike. All right. So were you going bike crazy? Yeah. <laughs> I had the like 
um, like stand where you can put the bike on it. I forget mm-hmm. now what it's called. Yeah. Um, and that I bought the like triathlon bike. Cause I was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to do triathlons now instead. And, um, <laughs> it was a whole thing. <laughs> so, so you're just one of those, if I'm doing it, I'm going all in kind of people. Oh yeah. I spent the, the money on the tri bike. I was signed up for some races. I was like, I was in it. <laughs> all right. So when did you fully embrace coming back to running? Uh, August of 2020. Okay. Like, yes, I, I would say like once I could run pain-free and was running workouts, all the other stuff went out the window. <laughs> all right. So that was, I said, we had the trials in February mm-hmm. of 2020. So now this is August. So you, you had the OTQ goal, weren't able to achieve that at that point. And then you're coming back to running. Um, what was it like, you know, after your first major running injury, having to kind of reset and, and kind of come at this again um, without having to kind of having that linear ish progress that preceded you? It was, a, it's nerve wracking. Um, I think for a long time, I was really nervous to go for a run because for so long I started any run in pain. And so there was this like nervousness for a, an extended period of time of like, is this, is this going to hurt? Am I doing too much? Um, and I would say that that lasted probably until October where I, by then I was no longer scared to go for a run or I didn't think about it so much. Um, and then I would get another injury very soon after that. So it wasn't very, it wasn't long lived. (laughs) Let's just, let's just dive right into it. (laughs) Um, yeah. So in January, so in December of 2020, I'd go for a run with a friend and that was great. I think it was on Christmas day. And then two days later I would run, Sydney and I would go for a run and I made the comment during the run that I thought my shoes were too small. Um, and cause they were like new shoes and they like, they were making my feet feel really weird. And by the time I got home, I could not stand. I was on the ground, like in pain from my back. And I told Sydney, I was like, I was supposed to fly to LA because my dog was with my parents and I needed to go pick him up. And I said, I didn't even know if I could walk to the gate. Um, and so that ended up being a sacral stress fracture, Oh God. which was like odd because I wasn't training enough to like correlate such, such an injury. And it was just, I was running and then I wasn't. <laughs> So were were they able to give you a heads up as to what caused it? I mean, it's like I'm really tight in my hips and those sorts of things, strengthening my glutes. I wasn't doing that. Um, So it was a lot of like the mechanical things that I should have been doing that I wasn't um, led to that one. God is obviously you. I'm assuming as a as a college basketball player, you were probably not. It's not like you were not used to lifting, right? You probably had done, you know, more lunges and squats than leg presses than you could ever remember. Had you just never put them into your run training? I have. I had. I think it was that I wasn't doing the littler, littler things um, than just like the big ones. So it was a lot of like what the PT was giving me was stuff I'd never done before. Um, um, so like, 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 like leg swings and mobility stuff. Yes like mobility and band work and really like paying attention to how I stand um, was like a big one too. Like I don't slouch when I stand, like that's important. Like if I'm washing dishes was an example she used to like make sure that my feet weren't pointing out, that they were pointing forward and different things that I like 
sort of let fall through the cracks. How you're dishwashing. Talk about causes of injuries that are just weird. I mean, my <laughs> God, I can't help but laugh. I mean, it stinks and I feel really bad that it happened to you. But like how I'm washing dishes, Doc, are you serious? Well, like to pay attention to like, because my feet would like point out at an angle and yeah. like to help strengthen the littler muscles, they, they sh- I should like point them forward or like if I'm standing, I lean to one side mm-hmm. instead of like standing straight up. So just like little corrections that I could make that would help. Not that they caused like my injury, but that could help prevent it. <laughs> it is, it is it's pretty funny, right? I then think of all like the funny baseball injuries. Like they always have to put like what caused it. So it's like throughout their back sneezing or something. You're like, oh my yeah. God, you're a professional athlete. Are you serious? Yeah. Um, all right. So all of a sudden this is a huge, this is a huge injury, right? So, so walk me through, you know, in terms of when you're actually able to put together like three solid months. Cause it sounds like starting May, 2020, we're going to go a pretty long time here to get like three consecutive months of good training in. In terms of from from a running perspective, obviously, if you're killing on the bike, that's still really good training. Um, I would say, so I would start running in, it probably, it probably took like six weeks off for the first sacral stress fracture. So I'm running by like February, mid-February. And I can put, I put together a timeline of until June of 2021. And I'm running injury-free. Races are coming back. So we go down to Florida and we do a 15K. Um and then I do a half marathon in South Carolina before I get a sacral stress fracture on the other side oh in God. June. It's wild. <laughs> so you went from no running injuries to all of a sudden you just like they're just coming at you every couple months. Yeah. In like this in the last two years. OK. Um, have you gotten injured since? Not since June. OK. Of 2021. So what have you done since then, if anything, to try, try to help curb those injuries or, or stop them from happening altogether? Um, so one big thing is when I was training for the virtual pit, so from February to May of 2020, I was running really high mileage for me for the first time. So I think we peaked at 115 miles. Oh. And... S- since then, I now stay. So in the fall of 2021, from like, I think I started running again in August of 2021 until the indie half in November was like my goal half. I think during that build, I maybe stayed at like 70 to 75 at the highest. And then I took some downtime in December and I started training for Bayshore in January. And in this build, I stayed not if I if I hit 90, I may have hit 89. That was the highest mileage weeks that I had. So it's definitely paying attention to the mileage that I'm running now and the strength training and um, the core and things like that are definitely things that we are paying attention to and implementing more. So in the fall of um, 2021 and then in the Bayshore cycle, when you were putting in your bigger weeks, were those all singles or were you incorporating some doubles? So I did a few doubles. I didn't do a ton. Um, my Bayshore training was really rocky because of the like work stress and things like that. So I think I did, a, I missed some key workouts, which, you know, in hindsight, like maybe that was a good, maybe that was a good thing. Like we can't really say it's hard to guess, like would I have run faster if I'd done the workouts or would I have been injured? Um, 
And so I missed some workouts and did a lot of easy running. So some of those weeks was high mileage of just easy running. Um, I think in April, I had two weeks where I didn't run a workout because I was traveling a lot for work and um, they just didn't happen. Um, so I think we looked at my like VDOT and I 91% of my training for Bayshore was easy running. That's interesting. And especially considering that it's not like you had just been hammering for two straight years. Like you've been dealing with injuries for two straight years. So it's interesting that you were able to run a 242 off the mostly easy running um, and have it, you know, being able to quantify it so well in VDOT, which is another easy way of doing it. So, all right. So three weeks out, you're dealing with stress that, you know, in the past, um, past few years has led to some, some rocky times mentally and emotionally. So tell me about race week, race day, how you were able to get in the mindset that would allow you to be at your best. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of talking to Sydney and, you know, wanting to keep it fun and like, we are going to have a great weekend. We have two dogs, um, Finn and Ranger, they're German Shorthead Pointers, and they were coming with us to Traverse City. We had an Airbnb on a lake. And so when we we're going up Thursday, the race was Saturday. So it was a lot of like, we're going to have a good time. The dogs are going to be able to play in the lake. We're going to relax. Um, I'd gotten a massage and I tried not to think about it as much as I could <laughs> and not, and certainly not the like time or like, goal. Um, I just wanted to have a good time. It was going to be my first opportunity to really race a marathon in two years. I'd run, we'd both run Glass City in April, but more as a training run. So a steady state um, run. So I'd run that at, in 256. And that gave me a lot of confidence in the distance. Um, and so it was a lot of just like talking like that and knowing that we're going to have a good time as a family and hang out and our friends were going to be there. So trying to be as relaxed as I could. So what was the race plan? What was the strategy? The strategy, um, I was going to, so my simulator three weeks prior, I'd run six eleven, um, which ended up being a half PR in the simulator. Um, in April for my goal half during the build, I'd had a panic attack during the race and run, 121, which is still a PR, but like, obviously it didn't go well if in the middle I'm having a panic attack. Um, and so I ran the simulator at 611, which that also wasn't a great day in terms of like my mental health and things like that. Um, and so my goal was to start out at 615 pace and stay there for as long as I could and be comfortable there. Um, and then maybe finish like around 611 pace. So that was sort of the goal or the idea. But if it went any other way, I was just going to be happy to have done the race, finish the marathon, be healthy and not injured and build towards the next race. Right. Because you know you mentioned the 244 that you ran with Sydney, but that was a virtual race. I mean, it's still an incredible effort, but race days just feel different. Yes. <laughs> right. Attending a race just feels different than hard workouts or even virtual races. And we've all come to learn that over the last few years. Um, virtual races can be amazing, but it's just the energy of it feels different. Like pacing is harder in a race setting than a virtual race setting. I think that's one of the, the positives of virtual race setting is that, hey, I know this course. I know how I feel. I don't have to pace myself against this other person who's going out too fast, right? All that stuff. So you had this race strategy in mind. Makes all sense in the world. How about the execution on that day? Yeah, so the race started and it was uh, 
four women, three or four women went out in front of me. And I was very locked in on like my plan. I didn't, and especially not knowing quite what shape I'm in, I knew I couldn't gamble with like going out faster than that um, and maybe paying for it in the end. So I started out at 6.15 and stuck with that, I'd say through like mile four or five. And by then I looked down and I was averaging 6.11. And so that was my sort of like speed limit um, for average pace. So I didn't want to see anything faster than that, especially since that would be a half PR through the half <laughs> in the marathon, <laughs> um, which is, could be a little nerve wracking. But um, so, yeah, I stuck with that. Um, Laura, who ran Bayshore, came up next to me um, and she, we ran for a little bit, chatted. I asked her sort of what her goal was and she said it was to PR and I knew her PR was 242. So when she took off, I stayed. Um, and ended up running a lot of the marathon with someone who I'd meet named Nick. Um, he was really awesome. We'd run a lot and he made me laugh during the race because it's a Michigan race. And we, uh, I knew a lot of people running the half when they started to run by, uh, it was a lot of like cheering them, cheering my name and me for them. And like, I ran by Sydney. And so we high-fived and cheered and he made the joke of like being famous feeling like he was famous because of everyone yelling. <laughs> um, so that was a lot of fun. I came through the half in one twenty thirty, which is a PR for me. Um, and I would say like miles 14 through 16 are where I really started to struggle. Um, I could tell that the fatigue was setting in. My legs just started to feel heavy and tired. Um, but I was still at, now I was averaging 612. Um, so still within the range of what I wanted to do. And I could still see two of the women ahead of me. Um, I would find out after the race that one of the women was pacing her sister. So she dropped at mile like eight. Um, so I, and I also knew I was in fourth place because it was the two of them. And then, uh, Dot was winning the race because I'd seen her. Right. Dot McMahon, I should mm-hmm. say. Another, another McCurdy trained coach, but yes, yes. And, <laughs> yes. and one of the best masters runners in America. Yes. Um, she was amazing during the race. We cheered and for each other when we passed, uh, she passed me um, at the turnaround. So that was really awesome. So that was great. And congratulations to her. Um, and so, yes, I would see the two women ahead of me. And as like a sort of goal for myself within the race, I thought over the next six to eight miles, I want to cut this gap closer. Um, I want to catch her, them. And Nick had passed me also, so I thought maybe I could reel him in um, later in the race, too, and we could run some miles together. Uh, So by mile, with this in mind, by mile 21, I catch Laura, and we say good luck to each other, and that's awesome, and I pass her. Uh, And so I'm like, okay, now I know I'm in third. Um, So I would, and I'm not necessarily knowing overall what time I'm going to finish at this point, right, anything can happen. Um, I'm just setting, like, smaller goals to sort of get me to the finish line. Um, so I see Nick ahead of me, and I catch up to him. And we actually run together, I'd say, until mile. I catch him by mile 22, and we run together until 24, where I then I pass him. And by mile 23, it was a pain I had not remembered from the marathon <laughs> of, like, how heavy my legs feel. Like the wondering where the finish line is because it must be so far away, like further than what they're telling me. Um, and 
so we turn start to turn back into Traverse City. And yeah, the my leg fatigue was nothing like I like it was wild to me. I was like, it feel they feel so heavy. At any moment I'm probably gonna start walking because that can happen in the marathon and I feel so tired and um but I didn't and I turned the corner back into the finishes on the track. And so I turned the corner as I'm feeling like really awful and Sydney jumps out and starts cheering for me right before I get onto the track and finish the race. And I see the clock right before I cross the line and I, that I'm going to run 242. And yeah, it's wild and awesome. And <laughs> it, was, it was really fun. That is fantastic. All right. We're going to talk to Sydney in a second, but before we do, you mentioned many times how you love to be, you know, set goals and constantly what's the next thing? What can I do? So you just got you had a huge race, right? It's an amazing performance. Races are back. You're feeling good. So what what is next on the list? Yeah. So in the fall, I'll either run Indy or CIM um, with the goal to OTQ. So there 236 will be the goal. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. <laughs> All right. Sydney DeVore. This, I can't wait to talk to you. We just had a, a great chat with Ari about her background as a runner, as an athlete, um, going through uh, the last 10 years or so with a particular focus on the last few years. So she mentioned that she started working with you in 2019. So going back in time, what were some of your first, um, I guess, observations or things that you noticed about Ari in terms of just the intake process when you saw her times and just the general, your general feelings as you got to know her a little bit, the first four to six weeks into training. Okay. So Ari was one of my very first athletes that I started coaching. I was still running for Hamptons and we were actually in Florida training for the Boston marathon. Um, and prior to her, the other athletes I had been assigned were kind of on the average runner scale, but Ari had, that OTQ goal written in her questionnaire. And that was really exciting for me because I felt like we were going to have a lot of fun and I was going to be able to make a connection with her and I'd be able to train her the way that I would coach myself, which is something I coached myself until I joined Hanson. So I was really excited to get to work with her in that, like an athlete of that level. Absolutely. And then as you were progressing, you know, with your coaching, you know, obviously she has an atypical running background for someone at that level as being a former college basketball player and someone who, you know, was self-coached for a while and maybe didn't quite have the same, like you mentioned, like she could do some of the similar running that you did, but she did not have the same background as you. So how much of that was relevant in, in, in helping prepare her and how much really didn't matter? A lot of that stuff came out slowly. It wasn't even in her questionnaire that she played collegiate basketball. Um, initially you don't really know what an athlete's been doing until you meet with them and you start talking to them. Um, and so finding out how young she was in the sport year, like years of running wise, um, and how little she was doing truly like relative to athletes, women that want to run an OTQ are doing uh, like twice, three times as much as she was doing. Um, it was really exciting because then the potential, you see that potential, you're like, what you've only been running. 40 miles a week or 50 miles a week. And you, you've broken three hours or you're, you know, you've run three hours. And, um, so I would say like that definitely meant that you have to be careful. You have to be careful with an athlete who hasn't done that kind of volume. Um, we had to slowly build her. She was 
it's unusual to train someone for the OTQ and not give them more than 60 miles a week, but that's kind of where we had to keep her, um, at least the first two cycles. Um, and the back basketball background, I didn't think much of at first, but it did end up coming. It ended up being important later on because of she had a reoccurring back injury that we attribute to the vertical, her vertical displacement when she's running, which comes from a lifetime of jumping and shooting hoops. Um, so she tends to have a little bit, she gets off the ground too much when she runs and that can cause some sort of low back issues for her. So, um, lots of things in your past that you don't realize might become factors that are factors later. Absolutely. All right. So let's, let's move up to, um, early 2020, right? So she moves to Michigan and she said she moved in, I think it was March, Right. So she moves to Michigan. So all of a sudden she's not just a remote athlete for you. She's someone that you're able to, to work with, you know, and it's like one on one in terms of in-person training, which is, you know, for people who not in running groups, that's so rare to be able to work with your coach one on one like that in, in a personal way. So as she comes to Michigan, she starts, you know, as she mentioned in our in our episode was kind of beefed up her training. Also, the mileage is going up. And then she also mentions all of a sudden injuries start popping up. What was it like for you as someone who was conscious of her goals, conscious, very conscious of her potential, but also trying to weigh the how much training is right and what can we do to be proactive with the with the injuries? Um, that was an interesting time because she moved here the week after the Olympic trials and a week before the whole world shut down. Um and there was really nothing to do but run. And I'd been running alone. Uh, I wasn't with Hanson's anymore, so I was running by myself. And she moved exactly a half a mile down the street. So we would wake up, text each other, start our runs, run to each other, and start running. And I think uh, maybe a lot of other runners experience this, but you suddenly have way too much time. And so we were a little bit reckless, but having so much fun with just like, let's see what kind of volume we can run. And within like 10 weeks, we were running 110 to 115 miles a week. Um, but she was handling it so well. You know, we ran every step together and um, she was getting really fit as anyone would running that kind of volume. Um, and so we decided to literally on a Tuesday, we decided to run a virtual marathon because I was like, I told her, you're in crazy good shape. Let's just let's do this. And, um, so we set it up and we did, and we ran like 244 in a course that we mapped out in our neighborhood. And it was just, I think we were both just on cloud nine about what this meant going forward. And I still struggle with this with all, all like quite a few of my athletes, but after a marathon, you know, you should take a break. You know, you should let your body rest and recover but you come off it, you feel great, you feel healthy, you feel like excited about what's next and you jump right back in. And I think because it wasn't a race race, like because it was just her and I and it felt like a long run, it was easy to shrug it off as like, yeah, we're ready to keep going. Um, but we were not. And so we both were actually qu quickly injured. Like the next week we were both injured. Um, and that kind of started a injury cycle, I would say, um, which I think we see a lot with high level athletes where you get injured 
And then as soon as you can run again, you rush back into trying to get back into the shape you were in when you got injured. And yet you forget how long it took you to get you there the first time, but you think you can be there in like six weeks as soon as you get start running again. And so I think her and I both fell into like this, let's get back in shape quickly because races were starting to happen again. We didn't, there was this like fear of missing out on the world reopening and the marathon project was coming in November and we had such big goals. So. And how was it for you as someone who was at that time, you know, one of the best marathoners in the country who also has big goals and you have someone who's, you know, that you're coaching, who's from a talent perspective, not far off from maybe where you are, but doesn't have the, the kind of the running resume yet that you had in terms of how were you able to manage working on your own training, but also making sure that maybe you're not going out like too hard or running too hard on easy runs or workouts that maybe she would have trouble matching or just kind of threading that needle between where both of you are in training while you're doing so much of the training together. We did zero workouts. So I think that was kind of our like meeting in the middle. Let's just run mileage. And so we didn't ever, cause I knew she couldn't run workouts at my pace at the time. Our fitness was far enough apart that our workouts would have looked differently. The volume of our workouts would have looked different, looked differently. And with no race on the calendar, there wasn't any point I saw. So we just kind of were like, let's just get fit and let's try and run volume. I couldn't normally give you because if we were in marathon training, you can't increase volume like that and increase intensity at the same time without risk. So this was a chance to kind of what I felt was a low risk situation to like build volume. Even as you ask that though, like lessons were learned. I did assume she could just do what I could do. And because she wanted to so badly, I think she went along with a lot of things that maybe she shouldn't have. And then didn't always communicate when things were starting to maybe not feel good because of that, like, want to, like, she wanted to do it um, and didn't want to disappoint me. And I think that makes it really tough when you have a coach in person. And you're also really close that there's this like fear of disappointing them. So you sometimes don't say if something feels hard or if something is starting to hurt or, um, yeah, I think we learned some lessons. We've learned some really difficult lessons of like, she can't run the volume I can run. And so our training looks very different now. Like we don't, we do a lot of our runs separately. We don't run our, a lot of our easy runs together. Cause I run my easy runs much faster we don't do workouts together, but we warm up and cool down together. Um, it's so easy to want to like just apply your training to someone else. And I think that's what I wanted to do. And it did not work. I got, I got her hurt in that situation. And it's so easy to like, put your, to, for anyone to put themselves in her shoes, right? She's like, this is my coach. She's also one of the best runners in the country. Like, of course, if I could do something with her, why wouldn't I want to, you know? And at the same time, it's like, it's not like it was so outside of her comfort zone world. Like it was an impossibility. It wasn't like, me trying to run with you where it's like well no of course matt i mean knock it off like what are you doing right it's like she was close enough where you could justify it mm-hmm. all right so let's talk about the last six or seven months right so she she as she detailed i'm gonna have to go into it you know chapter and verse here the three major injuries that she had all of a sudden she's going into the fall of 2021 it seems like she has at that point rounded a corner in terms of being able to train 
now that she had done that, and all of a sudden at that point, you're getting back to some more normal training for an extended period of time. How did you start to alter her training to, again, maximize her potential, but try to keep her on a straight and narrow from a health perspective? Yeah, it's been hard. It's hard because she's very stubborn. Um, she doesn't want to do less. She wants to do more. She's very motivated. Um, it's been, it took a lot of like tough conversations about this is what's appropriate for you versus like what you want to be doing is with where her development is right now. Um, we had to talk about max volume. We're not going over 85 pounds a week. We are, you know, we had to talk about intensity and marathon goals. You're not training for 236. We're going to train for 244. Um, there were, it was a lot of like, we even at one point sat down and said, do you want a different coach? Because I feel like sometimes I'm easy to push over, not push over, but like this, it's almost like, it's harder for me to tell her no than maybe someone else would have. And so, but she was like, no, I only trust your training. And so I was like, well, then you're going to have to not ask questions. Like you're going to just have to do it. No questions asked. And it, it can't really be much of a discussion because then I will compromise what I think is best based on what you're feeling, you know? Um, so we went into 20, this, this marathon cycle with some pretty hard lines that we had to draw. And of course things are flexible as far as workouts and days, you know, things like that. But there were some hard lines in the sand of we're not running, we're not training for this pace and we're not running this kind of volume because we just need you to get to the marathon healthy. Cause that once you can get one healthy segment under your belt and build on that, that's where magic happens. It doesn't happen in one marathon segment. It's the second, the third, the fourth, maybe even the fifth that you can string together. That's when like the real magic starts to happen. Um, so that's kind of how we navigated going into this and making sure she stayed healthy. And we're talking about a lot of physical health here in her conversation with me. She also talked about her mental and emotional health, um, and how she had some dark times, uh, in 2020 and then thereafter and the steps that she took, um, what she learned from a communication perspective, telling her support system and also the steps she took um, to help remedy some of those situations and, and put her on a better path for mental and emotional health. And then she also, as, as people who've listened to this conversation now have already heard, talked about how it had then transported itself to not merely being in her non-running life to all of a sudden having some of these panic attacks show up in her running, specifically either in a harder effort or on race day or in a race um, like a pre-race segment that she was doing um, with race in mind. As a coach, how did you approach this as someone who cared so deeply about her, but at the same time, again, try, you know, she has, she's we're so focused on her goal. It's not like you can be like, oh, hey, stop running because this is now impacting your running. So what was that like navigating the mental and emotional health in, you know, as well as the, the physical, which had also popped up during the same period? Yeah, the mental health, side of things has been a factor I think from the beginning even her original questionnaire said that the race she had done just a week before signing up she had had a panic attack mid-race um and that affected her performance and her first workout she came out and ran with me she had a panic attack mid-workout so I I saw what this what this looked like which I had never seen before it kind of is like she's having an asthma attack is what it felt like for me running running beside her, which is terrifying because you can hear the person beside you unable to breathe. And there's this 
there's a lot of fear from me at first that like when I not, you know, having not been exposed to situations like that, afraid of like, do I, what do I do? Do I call 911? Do I, you know, and, and she had told me and warned me, like, if this happens, you know, we talked about what's the best thing that I can do. And I, I just tell her to breathe. I just keep reminding her to breathe. Um, and so it's taken time to figure out kind of what triggers those episodes. A lot of it comes from the pressure she puts on herself. Um, and this like fear of failure. And so I do like, there was a point in 2021 where I was like, you need to fix your relationship with running because it's not a healthy relationship. It's like stressing you out to the point that you're not having fun. You're not enjoying running. I don't even know why you're going out here and doing these workouts that are like, you're clearly so stressed out about. And I do think she had to sit with that for a while and think about like, why do I do this? And what do I really want? And, um, that's not to say it fixed any, everything. And we had another mid race at like the Carmel half marathon in March. She had a panic attack, but again, it was a situation where that race was meant to like prove something to herself and it started to not go well. And I think we've all felt that feeling of, and not maybe to her scale, but that feeling of your goal slipping away and that like that pressure that builds up in your chest when you, when you know that it's going to be disappointing, like you're disappointing, not only yourself, but you think you're disappointing everybody who cares about you and supports you. And that was the first time she breathed through it. You wouldn't have even known it happened. She like, it was like a half mile where I, I could hear her breathing. And I was like, I, I was like damage control immediately. Like you need to keep breathing. It is not a big deal. This is just another race. Like it doesn't like, and we just kind of like, I just kept talking and I honestly probably don't even remember what I said, but I was like, just keep talking and just keep telling her to breathe. And within a half a mile, she was breathing again. And the pace, we finished the race and it was a disappointing day for her. But I think that was a huge victory. Like, cause it didn't have us stopped on the side of the road, which is what would have happened in the past. Um, so I think she is navigating um, kind of what to do in that scenario and not giving outcomes like time outcomes that much weight and pressure and not letting that to define like whether or not she is a successful person. Um, cause she sees it as like, I'm a failure. If I, if this race doesn't go well, I'm a failure. Not like, Oh, I had a bad day. It's so deeply personal for her. Yeah, that's tough. And I know that she's probably, again, she's experienced this, she's experiencing this to a degree that most people don't, but a lot of people have felt or do feel kind of like a watered down version of that same feeling when things don't go well. Um, what are some of the strategies that you just tell a lot of your athletes that deal with like that, that sense of disappointment that comes with, shoot, it seems like the vast majority of races don't end up meeting our expectations to some degree. Uh, and yet dealing with that can be so hard for so many people. I would say a lot of it comes with preemptively. We always acknowledge like, we need goals because the time outcome and place outcome is never guaranteed. Weather is never guaranteed. Racing is always, you're always taking a risk and you're asking your body to show up and give you a hundred percent on the day. And it just doesn't always do that. Um, so I do try to, when we have our pre-race plans and we talk like, 
let's talk about the worst case scenario and what that looks like. And just to kind of like, let's just hear it. Let's talk it through. This is like the worst thing that could happen. Is it really like that bad? Like you don't run the time you wanted. Okay. Like in the grand scheme of things, like, is it really that big of a deal? And I think when we can acknowledge that our biggest fear is actually not as big as we're making it. And then also I do like to have my athletes set goals that are not time-based. Like if things starts to hit the fan and you know, it's not going to be a good day. Like what can you do to turn it around? Like what is, what are some new goals or like some other goals you can have in the race, whether it's like, I am going to help somebody else, you know, maybe like the Des Linden effect. Like if my race isn't going well, I'm going to decide to, I'm going to help somebody else who seems like they're not having a good day. Or maybe their goal is I'm just going to execute my nutrition plan because that's something I really struggle with. And so even though I can tell that I'm not going to PR, I'm going to make sure I do, I follow my nutrition plan because that's something I have a goal to do or something like that. Um, but I really try not to let, like if, if an athlete has a really bad day, it's really hard to have, like, what can you really say? You know how they feel. We all know what that feels like. You have to just let them sit with it and then like, but not too long. Like, you got to move on. <laughs> There's always another race. <laughs> All right. Speaking of other races, right? So she has, she just ran so well. She ran 242, which is a, a fantastic performance, uh, an historical performance, uh, frankly, uh, as we detailed in the, the earlier conversation. So she has the goal of running sub 237. She's said that goal many times. She wants to OTQ and the OTQ number has changed, but her goals have also changed along with it. So what does she need to do? Um, or what, I should say this differently. How are you going to, um, I guess, approach her training in terms of things that she can improve upon to help get her to that, that spot? It's interesting um, that physically, I don't think she needs to improve any. I think we just continue doing what we're doing. We just keep laying the bricks. Um, we just keep doing the work we're doing. It's definitely mentally that she has to believe she can do it. Um, and I think she has to not be afraid of the risk involved. Um, this build to this marathon, I don't, if anyone, maybe she talked about it, her fear of failure stopped her from doing a lot of workouts. Um, and that's something that, again, like, I guess we modified as her coach throughout the way is she felt she would feel anxiety for workouts, so she just wouldn't. We would just not do them. We're just going to get the miles in. Um, if you look at her training, VDOT does that thing where you can see, like, what percentage of their running is easy, threshold, whatever. Hers is 92% easy and, like, 2% marathon and 2% threshold and, like, 3% other or something. Um, she was She didn't want to do workouts. She didn't, like she, the mental side of it, she was like, I don't want to say like choking that like workout morning, but she would talk her into herself and not doing it. So I do think in this next build, she can't be afraid to try, like try workouts that scare her. Um, and she needs to believe that she can do them. And I think this race really validated a lot for her. And I can tell like she has a whole new level of confidence already of like, Oh yeah, I am as good as I thought I was. I am as fast as I thought I was. And now she looks at her training and she's like, I can't believe what I did considering how my training went. Like, I can't believe I ran that time. And so now I do feel like 
she's in such a stronger place mentally and emotionally going into this next build because she believes in herself. Before it was just me saying, you're this fit, you can do this, you can do this, but we didn't have the proof. And I hate needing the proof, but like in her case, I do think it's a game changer when you like suddenly have that like validation that what you thought, what you were scared to maybe believe about yourself, you actually can do. Absolutely. And when you are creating a workout in VDOT, VDOT doesn't give you like it's not like an Excel sheet. You just like type in like a range, right? Like, hey, do, you know, six by three minutes at, you know, 515 to 525 pace, right? They give you a number. And like, I know, like for me, I tell all my athletes, like the number is just a number, right? Like give you the, there's, there's some grace on both sides of this, right? Um, when you're in conversations with her about her workouts, how often do you talk about like ranges of paces uh, within a, a workout construction, not only because it's practical, but also given everything that you've already talked about in terms of some of the pressure she puts on herself. With her, we always run workouts as a progressive effort where she starts at a pace she's super comfortable and confident. Like, I know I can at least run this. And I'm like, well, then let's start there. And inevitably when she does that, she finishes way faster than we even originally planned because she starts and she can start slower. So she finishes faster and essentially averages out what maybe I would have given anyways. Um, For her, it's really important that the prescribed pace is one that she's already comfortable with. But even then, sometimes you just don't feel good. And there were times she even that didn't that wasn't enough to like get her to want to attempt the workout, I think. Um, But yeah, she always has like a range of like, let's start here. You've done workouts at this pace before. And then we can just see where we can take it. Let's see where we take it from here. I'm a big fan of progressing through workouts. I love that. Yeah, it definitely takes some of the pressure off. And especially, shoot, now we're in the dog days of summer. It's like starting out hot in a workout oh. can be a recipe for disaster this time of year. You can't backpedal in the heat. There's nothing you can do. Once you've, once you've like let that ship sail, you're, it's over. <laughs> it's so true. We're going to be doing a Coach's Corner episode on, on, on workouts in the summer for this exact reason, amongst many others, but certainly that one. Like if you, if you step on the gas on the first rep, like God help you because you're going to need it. Yes. Yeah, then you're just in damage control. For sure. Sydney, thank you so much for coming on and providing insight and context into Ari's training. Uh, We really appreciate it. Thank you. Ari and Sydney, thank you so much for coming on. So as Sydney mentioned, she is a coach with McCurdy Trained, as am I. If you are looking for a coach and you want to get in touch with McCurdy Trained, go to mccurdytrained.com. That's M-C-K-I-R-D-Y trained.com. Fill out the questionnaire and then either James or Heather will talk to you and they'll basically fix you right up and get you matched up with a coach that they think will be a great fit for you. Also, if you love these kinds of episodes, I got a lot of great feedback on the first one that we did with Diane Newbauer and James McCurdy. Let me know if you have a suggestion for who would be a great fit for this, both from the athlete side and from the coach's side. You can reach me over on Instagram at rambling underscore runner or just shoot me an email, ramblingrunnerpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang.
Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.